Yes, Bolatara Karakora Ujiabi. So my name is Jason Moffitt and my country of service is of course Madagascar. So I served from 2015 to 2018 and uh, my banking town was Sambava. In the first two years, my um, town was Antumaro. And I worked in the ag sector, agriculture, and my last year for the extension year, I worked as an education volunteer. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so excited to talk to Jason because even though we arrived all together to Madagascar, he was in the northern region. So we really never got to see him other than doing conferences. So that was like, what, probably three, four times throughout the three years that we were in Madagascar. So this is like a great opportunity to hear the town from a person that was in the same country, but his story is going to be so widely different from Salina and mine. So yeah, let's get to our questions. Wait, I just want to say, you can tell it's so different just based off his greeting. Like in the intro of me and Carol, we say our greetings, and then his intro was like clearly way different. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Sambawa's dialect is a little bit different, or actually widely different from the rest of the country, isn't it, Jason? Yes, so the language that I spoke was Betsimisarka North, and um, it has a lot of singiness to it. Uh, just on the, you really, um, there's a lot of inflection on the words, and you just kind of carry it out with a lot of things that you say, so you'll uh, get a chance to hear a little bit of that today. Yeah. We're going to try to sprinkle some Malagasy in the interview just because it's fun, and I may be speaking Malagasy. I don't get to do it ever, maybe once in a while when I text to my friends, but it's not the same. Do you ever get to um, speak Malagasy, Jason? Yeah, yeah, I do uh, sometimes. Like, I have a few friends that I still keep in contact with through uh, Messenger, and we'll sometimes either be texting and gassy or sometimes I'll, um, you know, give them a call. So, yeah, every, every blue moon. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I also have a friend. And we actually did a conference like a month ago. And I was able to speak pretty much the whole conversation on the gas. And I was very surprised. I mean, it's rusty and I forgot a lot of words. <laughs> but the fact that I was able to communicate with her, I was like, yeah, three years of my gas. You know, down, look down the toilet. <laughs> Okay, but before we get into what your story, your tale was in Madagascar, we would like to know why you decided to join Peace Corps. Yeah, so um, I always wanted to join Peace Corps. Well, it was always in the back of my mind in high school, and that's when I kind of learned about it and um, did a little research, very surface level, 
But then when it came down to my senior year in college, so this was the fall of 2013, I went to a local campus recruiter and um, start looking into it a little bit more and then started the application process. And of course, then it was a lot different than, you know, how it's set up now. But um, yeah, so it was just always one of those things that kind of interests me and something that I wanted to do right after I finished college, because um, I just felt like that was the best time to do it. And, um, you know, while I didn't have a family and things like that. So, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, once I got accepted, it was just waiting from then and then uh, seeing what, what country I would get. Awesome. On your recruiting process, were you given, like, options of the country that you wanted to? Yes, yes. So it was, uh, I remember it was four countries. So it was uh, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, and Dominican Republic. And so, of course, Madagascar was the outlier. It was the only one that was different. I was like, you know, I always wanted to go, you know, to Africa. But then this was just like a totally different part because, you know, it's just that little island. People are like, where is Madagascar? And it's like, yeah, the little island just floating off, you know, the Mozambique Channel. So, um, yeah, it was just kind of one of those things where I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, see what that country is like. And, you know, it was definitely... A great experience and uh I, I felt like i chose the right one for sure oh my god my job just dropped when you gave your choices because i swear to god i thought that was gonna be me i was gonna be doing it and dominican republic just because i used to be spanish uh-huh. and i didn't like none of my options were in latin america really and then like, like so odd I have to say, I my jaw dropped because I was like, that was like my wish, where I was like, please give me like the southern continent of America's like options, <laughs> and instead I was giving like a lot of other countries that weren't in Spanish speaking countries. <laughs> well, what's interesting too is because um, so like my first international experience was in Costa Rica, and uh, it was um the summer before my senior year. I went there for a uh, study abroad program for a month with uh, about 10 other students at my university. It, it was just a really unique experience and nothing, you know, like I had ever experienced before just traveling in the States. So um I felt as if, you know, I'd already had that, you know, experience in, you know, the Central America. So I wanted to, you know, venture out and go, you know, a little bit further. <laughs> okay, so you got Madagascar and then... You know, you're trying to pack for what is going to be, at that point, 27 months of your life. Right. Do you remember if you have one item that you were so happy that you go with you to Mara? Yes, yes, yes. So it was uh, my camelback that I actually recently got rid of because it was just kind of gross after just all those years. So I remember uh, getting it, like, right before um, it was time to leave for service, which was, wow, five years ago now. And um, it, it it was one of those things that just really helped me along the journey in, um, in more ways than one. So sometimes I would go to Marojeji, which is in Sava, and um, do some hiking there and, you know, have all my water stored there and, you know, just those long trails and things. And even sometimes just taking just long walks and long trips with, you know, some of the friends I had there in the village um it was just one of those things that was just always nice to have 
and to where I didn't have to carry around a water bottle. I could just, you know, put on my, you know, cool little camelback. And it was just always, you know, interesting things to the people there. It's like, you know, water is stored in there. And then you like pull this like straw looking thing and then you can like sip the water while you're running. That was just so bizarre to them. <laughs> so it was also like a teaching moment as well. <laughs> Yeah, I can even imagine because even carrying now like your now gym bottle everywhere and people are watching you drinking water, just starting with that, that will actually drink water, which is like such a foreign thing to them. Yeah. Let alone you carrying that on your back. Yeah, and exactly. I can imagine <laughs> their, their faces when they first saw that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, on the opposite side, is there anything like an item or something that you wish you had brought with you to Mata? To be honest, there there really isn't. There really isn't because it's one of those things where, you know, upon leaving, you do like, you know, double check, triple check. It's like, okay, I got, you know, my fanny pack and I got, you know, all of these different clothes and things. And uh, once you get there, you realize a lot of those things you really didn't use or necessarily need. And so um, I feel as if in a lot of ways I was able to just um adapt once I got there and you know use things that I actually needed you know upon arriving to my site so um once I once I got there I had everything I needed the essentials I had you know books to read clothes that I probably didn't even wear because it was just so hot there and um yeah everything else I just kind of got in country um a few things that I actually still have today so um yeah that wasn't you know, one thing in particular that I wish I would have, you know, brought with me along the way. What is one item that you brought that you brought there and just you have with you that you carry? Uh, my machete. I have a machete, and oh, so nice. yeah, it's uh, I just keep it uh, <laughs> like right in my living room, um, right next to my TV. It's kind of like a showcase type thing, but it always is a reminder of just the hard work of the Malagasy people because I could just remember vividly some days just seeing you know, middle-aged men, you know, with their shirt off, just like muscles ripped, just cutting grass with this machete. And I was just thinking like, wow, like (laughs) we're so privileged in the States to be able to just, you know, crank up a lawnmower and do this while, you know, you may spend an hour or two, you know, doing it, you know, manually like that. So I always just kind of look at it and, you know, remember, you know, uh, just times like that and even using it to open up all of the coconuts that I, you know, consumed while there in the Sava region. So uh, it's just always a great reminder. Didn't you have any trouble getting your empty bag to custom once you got to the States? Uh, no, I actually didn't. I just uh, had it wrapped in um, just like some thick paper and like a piece of cardboard and had it at the bottom of the bag with tons of clothes on top and yeah it uh you know once I got my bag when I came home in 2017 for my home leave there it was <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> okay so now we're gonna start reminiscing about pre-service training so for those that don't know it's just the training that we do before we actually swear in as Peace Corps volunteers and I want to know what was your best like highlight or memory during this time I would say Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, there was um a time in which it was just, we we were getting ready to leave, I believe it was, for site. So I believe this was maybe, uh what, like late March, early April, some, some around that time. And 
my host family and I, we prepared the meal together and another volunteer that was in our stage, Lamin, he was actually able to come join in on the family lunch that day. And, uh, I just remember my host dad, when we were all sitting together at the table, he really got emotional and, uh, you know, he was just basically expressing how grateful he was for, um, you know, having, uh, well, I guess having the ability to host me, uh, for those two months and then just the times that we shared. Uh, so it was just, uh, it was really touching to see, you know, a grown man cry like that just, just from bringing in someone, you know, from a foreign country into his home with his family for, you know, that short period of time. So. Yeah, I actually wrote a poem about that. Uh, not this one for today, but just when I was writing a lot there. So, um, yeah, that, that was special for sure. For those listeners out there, if you listen to my episode, I say how like my favorite memory in pre-service training was when we did our uh, talent shows. And so I did mention that Jason does make poems. And so that's why I wanted to say, and I was super excited to actually interview him today because he did make one, which will be at the end of this episode. But to go on, I do want to say that that's pretty amazing that your host dad cried because the Malayasi people are really well known for not showing emotions. And so it just shows just how much you like, like bonded together that he was able to show his true sides to you. And that's really cool. Yeah, it was. It was just to see, you know, that level of vulnerability. Okay, so you kind of touched on it, but what were your living conditions like throughout pre-service training? Um, So it was pretty simple. I had my own room, which, you know, wasn't too big or anything. Just, you know, had my bed. And um, as soon as I stepped right outside of that living quarter, there was the kitchen in which we all ate dinner. And, uh, there was the cabinet, which is the bathroom, which was outside. And so as far as like washing clothes, that would be done down by the river. And my host family had a well as well. So a well as well. But, uh, <laughs> so we would get the water from there and, uh, we would cook outside. So the only, you know, kind of, I guess, I don't know difficulty was just sometimes having to get up early in the morning and then go outside when it was very chilly and you know the region um it was just uh you know I, I would would have preferred to stay indoors but it was just one of those things where I was just like okay I'm, I'm here now this is you know different and I have to uh go outside to the bathroom to you know use it so um, I mean, other than that, it wasn't, you know, too difficult. It was, um, you know, pretty, pretty simple and, uh, easy going. Yeah. And then, okay. So we're going to go into your transition. Did you have to fly to go to your site? Cause you were up north. Yeah. So Saba was a fly site and, uh, there was always this kind of running joke in which we said Saba is the flyest region. So, um, <laughs> You know, it was it was cool in the sense having to, you know, take a plane to get back to Tana to, you know, participate in the trainings and, you know, in service for, for things like that. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that aspect of it for sure. For our listeners, Tana is Antanarivo, which is the capital of Madagascar. 
And then, uh, Jason, so can you kind of explain how Peace Corps kind of helped you transition to your actual site? And then can you describe what your home was like there? I remember the guy who drove us, his name was Kumar. And uh, when we needed to, I guess, get like some of the heavier items, I believe it was. So we had a green trunk that we that all of the volunteers had in which we could, you know, store materials and things like that. And so we took this long winding road um, (laughs) from Tana to Sava with him and a few other volunteers that would be in the region. And uh, we got to experience. Uh, what the roads were like and the lack of infrastructure going from Tana to uh, my site. So we definitely got to experience that, you know, for the first time. But then after that, it was like, okay, now you guys, uh, this is the flight situation. So, you know, you just go to the airport in Sambava and then you can get to where you need to go from there. Yeah. So I arrived at my site. It was, I believe it was April 30th, 2015. Yeah, from from that point, I really got to see that it was totally different from uh, the capital, uh, Tana, because when I, when we got there, I had I remember I had on a blazer um, because it was colder, you know, when I was traveling. But then when I got there, it was so hot, and uh, I came up out of the blazer instantly, and then well, got some coconut water with uh, the other volunteers, so that was kind of like our welcome. So that was uh, really nice, you know, to just uh, arrive in in that manner. Did you guys have a Peace Corps transition home there or is it just like a banking town and then you guys would just have to stay at a hotel or something? Yeah, we stayed at a hotel in the banking town and my banking town was Sambava, which was actually about three and a half miles from my site. So it was a nice paved road. And it was lined with coconut trees on both sides. So they had what they call tuk-tuks, which um, it just kind of like ha- has a wheel in the front. Kind of if you imagine like a, not really a go-kart, but just you have the driver in the front, one wheel, two in the back. And it can carry up to, uh, well, it's supposed to carry up to four passengers. But a lot of times there would, you know, be twice as many <laughs> in the back traveling. But it was just a quick road to get from my village to uh Sambab, which took about maybe uh depending on how fast the drive was going you know five to seven minutes and so that's how I traveled primarily back um you know from my site to my banking town and I also had a bike as well so I could you know easily bike into my banking town um as well if I needed to wait I want to go back to um when you were going to Sava. So I I didn't remember or I didn't know that you guys actually drove from Tana all the way to Sava. How many days did that take? Uh, I believe it was, we did it in like a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we had the Peace Corps car with us. So normally it would take about a good two days. But we had, of course, our personal driver in uh, Kumar. And he uh, <laughs> definitely... Had a lot of experience on those roads uh, before, for sure, with uh, the way he drove. But uh, needless to say, we got there, um, you know, safe and sound. But, yeah, with him, it, it took uh, about a day. Did you guys stop anywhere to sleep or was it like a 24-hour ride? Because, you know, we have like the overnight rule. 
Uh, I mean, we made we made frequent stops along the way uh, at little hotels where we could, you know, get our meals and, um, you know, kind of sightsee for, you know, a few minutes, take some pictures. But we pretty much went through the whole time. Wow. Because even me going to Mananzari is really not that far from Santana, I guess. And we slept in Fenaretsu and then we kept driving. So I can't imagine going to Sava because the roads are like horrible, aren't they? Like basically there is no road. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, at some points there are, I mean, they're like, you know, good stretches of dirt road, but for the most part, it's a lot of rockiness to the ride for sure. But, you know, um, you know, we, we got there and it, it was definitely a lot better than the other trips I had taken before. Um, so <laughs> it definitely made me appreciate just having, you know, a personal car to be able to take me, you know, up, up until Saba. But, uh, but yeah, after that, I definitely made sure I save up, saved up the, um, allowances when I needed to, to make sure I could purchase a flight. <laughs> Do you remember how much is a, was a flight? Cause I, we, Serena and I always wanted to go to Saba. But we never got the money to to fly out there. I would just say on average, maybe like three hundred thousand RER, which of course would be about um, maybe like a hundred dollars, hundred US dollars, give or take. Yeah, that's that's a good price tag if you're if you think that we are. Well, how much was our stipend? Like six hundred and something. Yeah, I believe it was around that much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyways, I just wanted to clarify that because I honestly didn't remember that you guys drove out there and I thought it was going, I thought it was like a three day drive, just like the guys going to, where was Darshak station? You know, like, and see whatever, whatever, that town where there is really no road. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyways, I want to know three highlights from your service. Yeah. So, uh, one of them, uh, was, Definitely applying for uh, a grant with Peace Corps in which we could get money to do uh, projects at our site. And so I applied for this one uh, after the first year. And uh, it was for school garden and a small business in which I helped about, I would say about 12, 11 to 12 uh, women in my town form a Fikambanana, which is just a association. And so we use the coconuts that were just close to site because there was a coconut plantation that was like literally five minute walking distance from uh, the village. And uh, I had this idea in which <laughs> we could create coconut chips and then sell them in the banking town. And so kind of funny story going along with that. When I went to Tana for our training after a year, there were these coconut chips at this um, gas station called Jovena, which you guys remember. And uh, I remember seeing this bag of coconut chips and uh, they were really just appealing to the eye and uh, great to the taste. And... I thought to myself, I was like, wow, like there's so many coconuts in the region, in my region, Sava, but uh, I've never seen this product. And so this is a really crazy story. I called the number on the back of the chip package and I asked the guy 
um i was like can i speak to the person uh ulu responsable the person responsible for making this product right and i asked him i was like is it any way that you can meet me at uh at the mall there was a big mall in Tana and uh meet me at the mall and like uh just have a conversation in which you can tell me how to make these coconut chips and uh lo and behold he said yeah sure <laughs> so i met this total random uh stranger and he walked me through the process of how to make these coconut chips so then i took that applied knowledge and took it back to sambaba <laughs> and i explained to the women how we were going to make these coconut chips and so basically we did like a food transformation training and i got one of my good friends in um in sambava in the banking town to help me just kind of with the technical language and explaining the process and the steps and so we had a little um you know we had a little business going after that and it would just be so funny sometimes you know you think about here in the states just running a business like people are on times like you show if you had started eight you get there like 755 you clock in whatever and so it would just be difficult sometimes trying to get the women to uh come and uh how we have to like walk around the village and say oh dear are you there you know you, you coming in today and then they'll say yeah i'm coming and then they would end up coming with their baby and so We'll be trying to make these coconut chips in this one small space and I would be, you know, watching babies and some of the babies would be eating some of the coconuts to, you know, get them from crying sometimes. And, <laughs> you know, it was just a, a, an interesting process for sure. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I really, you know, felt as if it was one of those things that made an impact because it showed them something different, you know, just taking this, uh, you know food that they you know had available and you know doing it in a different way and you know thinking about it differently and you know starting a small business from it so i really feel as if that helped uh one of the ladies in the fecal banana begin her uh side business and so she started to make uh jam so with all of the local fruit and so she would make pineapple jam mango jam and then um yeah, it was funny. I remember we uh had someone take a picture of us. And so it was like me in the picture. And then she had like she was like holding up the jam with a spoon. And she had just like this just silly just face like we just had a great just working relationship. We would always be joking. And so we made that the label on the jam. <laughs> and uh yeah, so that was just kind of one thing. Right. So I know that was kind of a mouthful, but just um just that grant, you know, um, providing that opportunity for the women in the village and then uh, another thing another highlight was um, extending so extending my third year and creating a special project because I would often go into town a lot because it was just right there like literally 10 minutes away and so um, my special project was working at Lycée Orchidée which is a private school in the banking town and there I taught English, agriculture, and art to uh, elementary, middle, and high school students. It was just kind of like a, a hybrid course, just kind of just a little bit of everything. And so I got to do that my last year. And then I guess the last highlight was just, just being by the beach and being able to 
um, experienced that. And, uh, I remember just, just having the opportunity to meet people from different places. Like there was, um, a guy named Clovis who was the, uh, director of Alliance Francaise. And so for those who may not know, Alliance Francaise is basically an organization in which, uh, people can learn French and they have uh, books in French at the library. And so I ended up taking courses there because I had to learn French in order to teach at the school because there it's a lycée. And so the instruction is in French. And so it would just be so funny. And I just thought it was just so kind of interesting that kids in a village that was, you know, three and a half miles away would just speak Malagasy. But then you go to you know, uh, the banking town where you have students dressed up in their, you know, kind of prep uniforms with all white and ties and speaking French saying, bonjour, monsieur. It was just like a really interesting, you know, dichotomy going from, you know, just one end of the road to the next. So, um, so yeah, the last thing was just being able to have those different cultural exchanges with, you know, people from France and, you know, um speaking you know with these students in French and Malagasy at times <laughs> uh for our listeners I want to clarify that banking town so I know other Peace Force sites don't always have that uh, lingo but for us our sites that we were stationed at were so small that we had to go to a bigger city in order to get money and so that's why we call it a banking town because there's an actual ATM there that we can then pull out money to use in, within Madagascar's area so I just wanted to clarify that for any listeners or anything that didn't really understand what banking town meant. I wanted to ask, for your grant, was it the USAID uh, given one or did you have to fundraise yourself for it? Uh, it was the, I believe it was called the PCP grant, but it was, so the money was provided through Peace Corps. Okay, yeah. That was like the USAID one. Great. Okay. I was just wondering because I know some of them didn't qualify. So did you, did you write it where it was like a like a nutritional program or something or how did you write that grant to like get funded for it uh so it was basically written to where yeah like like you said i had a lot of um talked about like the nutrition aspects of it so that was more so for the school gardening so it was split so it was like the school gardening nutrition um you know that aspect and then also just the business side of it so the, I guess, technical term for my position was a agribusiness volunteer. So just like combining agriculture and business at the same time. So, um, yeah, I just wrote it up in which, you know, the people funding, you know, the project could see, you know, the benefits and uses for um, all of the equipment that was going to be used for the food transformation and all of the seeds that would be bought for the gardens going back to jason's highlights i love the story about the uh, coconut chips and how this random guy just willingly met with you in a random place in tana and i guess it's just a testament of like how uh, helpful people are in madagascar they're just like they just get out of their way it's just part of their nature right like just they're so helpful and they don't care about what they have to do to to help you in any way so I love that story. It was really, it was, it was funny too. Like, I can't believe you did all that. Um, do you know if the, some women are still making chips or that didn't really? 
No, I mean, it kind of it kind of phased out just based off of, you know, uh, people's responsibilities and, um, you know, just, you know, certain changes and which people, you know, moved from the village or whatever. So um, but even though it wasn't, you know, sustained long term, I feel as if it provi- provided a good foundation uh, for the women um, in the village, for sure. You did mention that a lady started her jam business. Yes, uh, that kind of yeah, that stem that stemmed from that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's yeah. something that definitely I believe you know is you know one person can do, and um, it wasn't you know something that was just brand new um, anyway because you know there would be you know local jam sold in some of the shops and um, you know the the supermarket and things so. You know, that's, you know, something that is, you know, just pretty easy and it just, you know, just takes the initiative and effort to do it because it's just the the local fruit, which, you know, always grows there and uh, the sugar and the time and hard, hard work. <laughs> right. You, you, you just never know how your projects are going to go, right? Like you expect one thing and then, hey, this inspired this lady to start her business, even though it's not like. A revolutionary business making jam, but it did inspire this woman to start her own business. And the, I guess that that's the biggest goal that you can accomplish with a project because you never really know how things are going to go in, in the small villages. And the, the, the part of you knocking in people's doors to see if they would come to work, that was hilarious. Like I can't just picture you just being all day and then yes, and that all. <laughs> It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh yeah, it was it was a uh, interesting process for sure just rounding up everybody to, you know, start making these chips. <laughs> <laughs> Can you think back about a WF moment? Like, you know, like what the fuck moment where you were like this just happened because you are in Zambawa or this just happened because you are a peaceful volunteer in Madagascar. Something that you could never ever imagine could happen to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, this was just, uh, one random day where I was just kind of just bored at sight. And, um, initially, right, just once you just kind of getting used to everything and walking around trying to figure out what's going on, what to do. So I was just, uh, wandering in the forest one day and, uh, I came across a group of boys that were, um, hunting lemurs, um, because they, you know, had this slingshot and it was about four or five of them and they were just kind of like aiming it, you know, up at the trees and stuff. And so, um, you know, I had heard about this prior, you know, that lemurs were hunted, uh, right. And, um, yeah, so there was one boy in particular that was just, uh, stood out from the others. And so of course it's hot there and, you know, uh, I think all the boys had on, you know, just, you know, pair of shorts, you know, no shirt. I mean, that's fine. It's, you see that every day, you know, men walking around like that. But then there was one boy in particular that had on just a shirt, but, uh, no underwear or shorts. And so he was half naked and he was the only one in the group of boys hunting these lemurs. And so, uh, at that point I had to, uh, head on out of the forest because I didn't know, uh, what was going on. That was just a bizarre scene to me. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, went on back to 
my humble abode. <laughs> yeah, so that was just uh yeah, just kinda like a wow type moment for me. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't see those happening every day in your regular life. <laughs> How naked boys walking down the street or the forest, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just remember little babies doing that all the time where I'd be like, Where's your bottom? Like <laughs> Yeah, but the, he was no baby. He had to be about at least eleven or twelve years old. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, wow. he, he was big enough to be wearing bottoms. <laughs> uh, to our listeners out there, you may be terrified that people are, like kids, are hunting for lemurs, but just remember that they are hunting them to eat, so they are not going out in the forest just for fun. Or am I wrong, Jason? They are, they are being hunted for meat, right? You know, sometimes they would even have them as kind of pets. Like I remember sometimes riding in the tuk-tuks, and then I would see like a little lemur on a string. And then I would just look over my shoulder and I'd say, wait, it's a lemur next to me, a little small lemur on this boy's shoulder. So sometimes, yeah, they would uh just be walking with the lemurs in the village. And sometimes they, uh you know, would sell them. And like you said, sometimes in, you know, rare instances, they would, you know, uh use them as food. So, um yeah, it's just uh, one of those things. It, it might be tough for some listeners to hear that lemurs are being, you know, hunted and they they are treated as pets, but then again, that happens all over the world. So yes, lemurs are a threatened species, but then again, like 90% of all the species out there. So please don't blame the Malagasy people. I mean, they are responsible, but there is a lot of layers as to why they are doing this. I just want to like, you know, say out there, because when people don't know, they it's really easy to attack and be like judgy about like, oh, why are people like killing animals that are in danger, right? But they really don't know the background of it. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way because I was those kind of people that be like, oh my God, why are they killing those animals if they are like in danger? And now I understand it's way more complex than just the fact that they are like hunting them or like, you know, selling them. There is a reason behind that, so... Yeah, I'm just going to say on the flip side, so in Sava, there was uh the Duke Lemur Center uh there, and um this uh organization kind of helped to provide information for the people in the region about the importance of, um you know, conservation and, you know, protecting the um endangered species there in the wildlife. So um that was also, you know, um you know, on the flip side, a good thing to have present in the region. I guess Duke has like the largest liver population outside of Madagascar in the States. Yeah, but I, be, I could be mistaken. Can you think of like a very horrifying situation that you endured during your service? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> this was, I think, during the COS conference, which for, um, us would have been, um, 2017. Uh, because it was, you know, 2015 to 2017, but we, uh, stayed, we extended, uh, one more year. But this was at the COS conference, which was in, I believe, March of 2017, somewhere around that time. And so a lot of the volunteers had gone out to celebrate the night in Tana. And some kind of way I got, um, separated from, one of the volunteers, uh, coming, going back to the hotel. And so this was like in the early hours of the morning, probably like around, I think, uh, 5 a.m. So it was still kind of dark. And, um, I remember seeing this, uh, this homeless guy who was, uh, sleeping like underneath this bridge. 
And then I was just thinking to myself, I was like, wow, because I really like to take pictures there. And um, <laughs> just uh, I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, this would be like a good like photo op, just like this angle and just like just this whole background. And so I was kind of like waiting like on the side of the wall, like my foot on the wall, just kind of like looking, you know, off to the side this way where he was laying. And then um, I just turned back to the right and then I see two guys approaching me. And then one of them like has a knife, like he shows the knife and they're like coming up on me. And then I'm just thinking to myself, like, I got to just be cool. All right. Calm, collected. All right. And uh, so I had a jean jacket on and then I had my phone in my front pocket. So then when they start coming up on me, like I started saying something to them, I was like, uh, Drossel, 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 like I got some money, I got some money. And then so I started like kind of like reaching in here this way and then they kind of like tug on my jacket. And then I like some kind of way, like, I don't know, just flew out of the jacket. And then I just like ran like the other way. And uh, I escaped uh, with uh, no injuries, no cuts, no wounds or anything. But I just think to myself, like, um, you know, it just could have gone, you know, a lot worse than it did. And uh, it just really, you know, always, uh, you know, just from that moment on, like even now, like just to be watchful of people and to always be, you know, aware of your surroundings and, uh, you know, not to be out by yourself at that time of the day um so yeah that was just a kind of a, like a, a scare for me for real but um yeah I mean it, it you know all worked out and I just was out of a nice jean jacket that I had uh fripped and so fripp is just kind of like you know thrifting and uh of course my phone but of course those things can be replaced um but yeah so that that was it for me for sure Yeah, I remember that story. And all I remember was like the commotion when you got to the hotel and everybody was talking about the story. Like, what the hell happened? By the way, do you remember one time we were in Nishuraka and we were driving back to the Meva? For those listeners, Meva is like this house set up by Peace Corps for volunteers in certain cities. So in, in the capital, we had this house that we can go and kind of reserve a bed and just stay there for a couple of days. And I don't know if you remember, Jay, somebody was you. Tyler, Tila, and then Lamin, it was the four of us driving back, riding in a taxi back to the Meva, and none of us have the blue cards, and we got stopped by the police. Yes, I remember, and you handled the situation well, you just start speaking. <laughs> it was, so, like, I remember till this day, because it was, I think that was, like, the first most terrifying moment, because dealing with the Managasi police is is a horror, a horror story every single time. But all I remember was like, it was the three guys and me and two of the guys are African American. So I guess the police thought that you guys were going to speak to him. And I don't know what it was, but I was speaking Malagasy and the guy didn't want to listen to me. All I remember was that, that he was completely ignoring me. And until he didn't want to deal with the police guy and you and, and Lamine were trying to talk to the guy and he was just being a complete dick because all he wanted was money for like to let us go and I don't know why I constantly think about these stories with the police is I guess they are just ingrained in my brain and every time I see a police is like damn you police <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember that night so vividly because I think that was the first encounter I personally had with a Malagasy policeman 
And it was like horrible. I mean, there are many, many more, but that was like, the very first one. And I guess that was like a bonding morning, <laughs> bonding moment with you, Lamine, and Tila, because it was just me, the only girl with three boys in this taxi uh, late at night trying to get to the Meva. It was just like the whole experience was like, to me personally, it was very terrifying. Yeah, I will say for clarification, a blue card is like our visa in Madagascar. So we had to hold that on us whenever we were in the capital, because if you were pulled over, you had to show that you were there legally to like stay there. Um, otherwise, they'd ask for like your passport, but it also would have to show a visa saying how long you were able to stay in the country. And they did that because that's just another means of which they would get money for like the police and stuff, um, mainly bribes. That's what would happen. But dang, Jason, your story with the knife, I'm sure that that was terrifying. Um, I can't even imagine because I know any time that me and Carol had to deal with theft, it was always not at knife point, but they would always just secretly like slash our bag or something. So I can't imagine like them showing a knife and then having to be like, okay, how am I going to get out of this situation? So I'm glad that you're fine and that everything went great, but that is horrifying. I want to say, so uh, Carol, you were right. I looked up about the Duke Centers. So Duke Lemur Center is, it has 200 animals across 14 species and the DLC houses the world's largest and most diverse population of lemurs outside of their native Madagascar. So that is on their website, just following what it said there. <laughs> okay, so we went over the horrifying and WTF moments and now trying to get on a little bit of a happier note. What was your top OMG moment? Wow, I can I can just think of so many, but I I would say one for sure um is when I walked from Antala to Maroncetra. And so I believe the it's funny sometimes like I, I can only think in kilometers because that's just how things were there. So I'll just say it in kilometers, but um it was probably about I don't know, anywhere from I don't know like between 100 and 150k i believe it was and so <laughs> the distance kind of looks small on the map from those two cities but when you actually walk it it's uh quite a distance and so it was one of those things where it's like when you hear about you know the malagash people can do it's like oh yeah you know we uh you know this person or so just walked from antala tomorrow etc you know but they're used to doing things like that and traveling long distances by foot. And so I was just thinking to myself, like, you know what? I'm in shape. I can do this. I want to try it out, see how, see how it goes. And so, um, I remember doing it and, uh, you know, just, just walking in, uh, for a long time, I was like by myself, just like walking. But then along came this guy. And I was uh asking him, I was like, uh, wait, are you going the same way? Like, are you going tomorrow, et cetera, as well? And he was like, yeah. And so we were just, uh, we would be walking together. And I couldn't tell how old this gentleman was, but he was definitely, uh he had a, a pretty good pace on him. And I would have to, you know, really uh keep up with him because there were a lot of hills and things. And I just remember along the way, like, we would stop and there would be, like, these little small, like, little, um kind of like almost just not really like even a hut but just like probably just like two like pieces of bamboo and like a um you know just like a table or something and then there would be like pineapples out and so we would stop to you know for some pineapple for energy or just like some local fruit or whatever and then we would just keep going and i remember at one point too uh we had stopped 
because the, the walk is so long. And, uh, we stayed at like this small little, um, like hostel, not really a hostel, but, um, you know, just like one of those places along the way where it's a few beds and you can stay for, you know, something uh, cheap for a night. But then, uh, we woke up, uh, early one morning because the, the trek was so long and you had to like, you know, really maximize in the day. And I remember just walking sometimes through like water and like it was like pitch black. And I'm like, how am I even doing this? And like it was just really uh, an interesting experience for sure. And uh, once I got to Marancetra, I remember uh trying to get back like I was like really low on money. So I couldn't even I don't know, afford like a Bruce ride. And so I had to like walk most of the way. I was like, man, like I was waiting for the money to hit the account and it didn't hit the account. So I was like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I got to walk back. <laughs> so I ended up uh, walking back most of the way. And um I remember there was some points where I was like, okay, like I see the road you know, wind this way. And then I was like, which way do I go now? And so I would say, I would just kind of like randomly see a person that was like making the same trick and I would say I is a lot of la hande sambava and they would say aye <laughs> and so it would just be like just over there just keep going that way <laughs> and so I would just keep going in that direction and uh you know I ended up making it back and towards the end of the trip I got a, a short uh little Bruce to get me there the rest of the way and um yeah, I was just so glad to be back home and to, um, you know, finally say that I had done that, but then to never do it again, because that was, um, yeah, it was, uh, definitely, um, a lot of work. It was a lot of work for sure, but, uh, it was definitely that something I always remember and just, just kind of look back and laugh on. <laughs> oh my God, Jason. <laughs> So I looked it up. So for kilometers to uh, miles, based off your range, it's anywhere from 60 to 93 miles one way that you walk. And that's crazy. <laughs> Why did you want to walk that? It was just one of those things where I just wanted to just like test myself and just, you know, like just say that, you know, I could do things that Malagasy people could do too. And um, yeah, it was... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I definitely wouldn't do that again, though. <laughs> How many days did it take you to do this? That's insane. Like, I don't know, like two or three days, probably. One way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Because I did bike like 125 kilometers with Stephanie. I, in total, we biked 250, but we did that in, in two and a half days. And we rested, like, we sat at my house, and we had a full meal, and, like, we biked. We didn't walk. That's it. Like, I can't even comprehend, Jason. Like, it, my brain kind of registered you walking this distance just because, for fun. <laughs> I cannot. Yeah. And then, wow. too, it's like, um, I mean, because the road is so bad, that's why a lot of people actually walk it, as opposed to you know just going by like a lot of people rent motorcycles they'll do it like that because it's easy to navigate and you know get through it but um that's why a lot of people walk it so i was like yeah you know i think i think this is maybe manageable but it's just one of those things where it's like once you're doing this like okay like i can't turn back now i've come too far like i've looked at the signs and it says antela 
uh 75k left <laughs> you just see those markers and you know they slowly start to decrease in numbers and you just keep going you just find some you know type of internal strength to say you know i, I can do it <laughs> that was uh amazing you decided to walk several days just to like prove to yourself that you could so now i'm interested to know what was your most fun vacation Oh, it would definitely be uh going up to the northernmost parts of Madagascar, so Diego Suarez and Nosy Bay. So I went to Diego uh actually I think like three times. So the first time was the first year. So this was twenty fifteen. It was um I think like August or September. And so it was the uh marathon. And so, uh, this was actually the first marathon I had ever run too. And it was in Madagascar. So that was really memorable to just like, you know, let that be my first one. And so, um, Diego is really nice in the sense that it's, it's kind of like Sambaba and the dialect and, you know, um, just the culture, but it's also very different. Like it's got a lot of, um, unique differences as well. And, uh, just the beaches there were nice and, um, just, uh, some of the people that I met and, you know, places I got to see. And then Nosy Bay as well. Um, that a lot of, you know, uh, travelers go there, a lot of international travelers rather. And I think you can actually, uh, get a flight from Italy to Nosy Bay. Yeah, that was really nice there. It was really, uh, you know, fancy, you know, a lot of, you know, expensive restaurants and, you know, nice hotels to stay at. So, uh, yeah, Nosy Bay was nice. And, oh, I remember, yeah, so uh, one of the, like, probably greatest experience, like, I've ever had just in life is being able to see or swim, rather, with uh, whale sharks. And so, yeah, this was, like, uh, I did this with a few volunteers. And this was, I think, uh, 2016. It was, like, maybe in September or something. And I just remember, like, you know, our guide, he would say, all right, get ready, get your fins on. I see one. And then we would just like jump in the water and, uh, you know, we would just see these big majestic animals, like 10 to 15 feet away from you, like just in this, you know, big body of water. And it was just so amazing just to see something like that. And, um, you know, really fortunate that one of the volunteers had an underwater camera and I actually still have a couple pictures from that. So it's always nice to, you know, share with some of my students here, like, you know, you know, some of the experiences that I've had and, you know, just, um, you know, how beautiful the world can be and, uh, just so many different experiences, so many unique experiences that you can have like that. So yeah, definitely. So those two places, Diego and Nosy Bay. Nice. Yeah. Me and Carol did the Nosy Bay trip. And I remember when we got there, I don't know if it's because we're health volunteers, but we were like, it's so sanitary here. Like, people are washing their hands, we're able to actually do things. Like, it felt like we were on a completely different island than Madagascar, and it it is a small island, so it is a small island on the coast of Madagascar, but it is a part of it, and we're just like, how is it so different here? Like, <laughs> and it just, it's a, it's a beautiful small little island, it's so true, and like, we did do the whale shark, like, scuba diving trip, and I just remember that was fantastic. Although, I remember there being little jellyfish, and I kept getting stung. Where I was like, oh, oh, like it just like woke me up even more than the cold water. Like I was just like, okay. <laughs> and then, did you guys get to see the sea turtles? 
because ours we got to see huge sea turtles. Yes, yes, that's that's what I forgot to mention too. Yeah, I got to uh, swim with some of them as well. <laughs> yeah, and they were humongous. Like I didn't see any of the babies, but we saw the big ones, and they were just like probably as tall as me, which I'm like five foot, and so it's just like as long as probably my body. <laughs> yeah, Nusi Bay is a dream come true. And do you remember the small island of the small of Nusi Bay? It's like the like one day trip they what is it? Nosi Ranja. Yeah. That you know you get there and then it's like two islands and then as the day goes on it eventually join like is there is like this natural bridge. Yeah, that was another place too that I went. Mm-hmm. To me that's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my entire life. It was so beautiful and the water so blue and the and the sand so white. Like it was great visiting there and I'm if anyone does get a chance, like we would highly recommend to go and visit Nosy Bay if you want to see a ve- like go swim with the whale sharks and the turtles and it's just fantastic. Like everything there is just beautiful. Um, but it is more of the touristy area. So that is definitely not like what you would mainly experience on mainland Madagascar, but you- it's great. <laughs> and there is a great hostel there, Tamana Hostel, founded by a couple of volunteers who met in Madagascar. So is a little a bit of a propaganda for Taman Hostel, which I hope is still out there. Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, they made a hostel. That's right. They they are there. Like I remember seeing pictures on their Instagram. I forgot what they're called. Yeah, they, that's cool. So two Peace Corps return Peace Corps volunteers ended up making a hostel within Nosy Bay, and it's actually really pretty. And they have some cool events there throughout the year. Like at least Instagram makes it seem so. So, <laughs> and then um, okay, so back to Jason. Uh, what was your favorite dish um, at Madagascar within Madagascar, and did you learn to make it yourself? Yeah, so uh, going back to coconuts, <laughs> so it was uh, pretty simple, but uh, we had the beans that we would soak overnight, just like regular like red or black beans, um, and uh, using or making rather just the authentic coconut milk. So they would have these things called, uh, boozies in which you would sit on them and then they would have like a, um, like a rounded kind of sharp teeth like, um, end. And so once you would crack open the mature coconut, you would have the two halves and then you would just kind of scrape around the meat and then you would have the shreds of the coconut that would fall off. And I remember just trying to use this one time and I think I like cut myself because it was just, you know, really hard at first trying to like work your way around this. And then I remember seeing one of the ladies in the village, like she was just like, oh, let me show you really quick and just making it look so easy. And so I eventually got the hang of it and, you know, became, you know, uh, good at it or whatever. Um, but so, uh, once you have those shreds, then you would make the coconut milk by hand by, um, taking it and getting water. Uh, so putting the shreds in water and then just really working it. Uh, working through it with your hand, squeezing it, and then you would uh, strain it. So then you would just have that just raw, authentic coconut milk just right there. And then you would have your beans. You would start to cook those, and then you would add the coconut milk in it. And then you would let that simmer, you know, over the fire outside. And then you would just chop up some onions, tomatoes, uh, put, you know, of course, a good uh helping of salts into it <laughs> and uh uh a little ginger there as well and then this would be the roe 
so the roe is just basically the side dish that accompanies the big plate of rice that you would eat. And so uh, a lot of times I would really look forward to this meal with uh, my next door neighbors. So whenever they would cook, I would sometimes go over there and eat with them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a really simple dish, but it was just one of those things where it's just like kind of almost like macaroni and cheese in the sense that it's a comfort food. But uh, just having this meal is just like, ah, like it's just so good. Just the, you know, the texture of, you know, the beans once they cook that long and then just the savoriness of the coconut milk, you know, in it and just that big plate of rice, you know, after, you know, a long day would just be just the perfect meal. And so, um, yeah, so I did, you know, learn how to cook that because I would, you know, uh, cook with my neighbors a lot. And so... Yeah, that was just, uh, you know, one one classic meal that I learned and ate pretty often. Oh, my God. My mouth just got so watery from that dish because I tasted a one in Manacara. I guess it's, not, it's very similar, but it's not a, like a common dish in the region where I was at. But I had it once and I was like, oh, my God, what is this? It was so good. Uh, would you say that you're able to make it here in the States? Uh, I mean, it's not the same. I mean, yes, you could, but, um, you know, I haven't found an object to, I guess, scrape out the coconut shreds like I would there. And then, of course, the coconuts that they, you know, get imported here aren't the same. And so, um, you know, it's... I tried it, but it just, you know, it wasn't as authentic as, you know, say, you know, you would have it there. But, um, yeah, so definitely I would like to, you know, whenever I do get a chance to go back, you know, have that as a good uh, homecoming meal <laughs> when I would return to the village for sure. Well, Jason, if you ever come to Colombia, you can find the, the thing, the scraper for the coconut, you can find it here. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to get you the little scraper thing for the coconut because they use it here in the coast all the time. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Besides cooking, what was one chore that you either really enjoyed doing it when you were in Zimbabwe or that you were like, ugh, I just don't want to do this anymore? Chores, I would say. Oh, easy one. Washing clothes. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, that was one thing that uh got old really quickly. And so once you see the amount of time that you have to put into it and um especially sometimes like if it was, you know, be a, a bright sunny day or whatever and then for some reason once you put the clothes out, you know, it would start raining and then you have to run outside really quickly on the line, get the clothes and then put them back. And then of course 5 minutes later it would stop raining, so then you have to put them back out. <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, I had to uh, learn very quickly that there were um, panasas in the town and I could just pay them for uh, their service and helping me to achieve nice, clean, good smelling clothes. So, yeah, that was uh, one thing that I definitely do not miss. But it's a skill that you uh, kind of learn to enjoy. Just sometimes, you know, it would be therapeutic just, you know, dipping the clothes in the bucket and, you know, scrubbing it. And it's uh, just funny because it's one of those things while you're there, 
you can't like wash clothes and read a book. But of course, you can do that in the States. <laughs> but if you try to do it there, then your book would get wet. Right. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just uh, just funny just kind of looking back on that. And, you know, but now I can say that I know how to wash clothes by hand <laughs> if I need to. One skill that will always come handy, right? And just changing a little bit subject here, how did your Peace Corps service help you professionally? I would say the ability to um, quickly adapt to certain situations and be flexible and um, just have a growth mindset when it comes to, I guess, whether it's meeting with people or trying to just organize uh, events and if something doesn't necessarily go a certain way knowing that I can find another solution uh, for that so um, prime example now uh, just being in you know we're working rather through this pandemic you know as a teacher we're having to teach a totally different way than how we did this time last year and so um, a lot of times I'll be you know, on a Google Meet call with students and, um, you know, you know, the call may drop or, you know, there may be an issue with, you know, one of the students trying to share their screen or what have you. And so just, you know, working through this is kind of reminded me of how I was able to adapt and change quickly there and how I'm able to, you know, do that now um, living in our current context in which we have to teach students in an entirely different way. So definitely, um, it, you know, it's taught me, you know, how to, you know, change and adapt and just, you know, be flexible uh, when, you know, life throws different things at you like it, you know, is doing now. Can Can I ask you, because you mentioned that during your third year as an extension, you were teaching at the Lycée in um, Sambawa region. Do you think that that experience actually confirmed the the idea of you becoming a teacher as your career long time? Oh, yes, 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 for sure. Because, you know, while I was there, it, you know, it brought me a lot of joy just, you know, uh, just coming into the classroom every day. And the students, they were just so, oh, my goodness, they were just characters. Right. So uh, my youngest group that I taught elementary school, they were uh, it was third grade. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I would just come in sometimes like and I don't know why they would do this. I guess they just I don't know, loved to have me as my teacher. And I would just come in and then they would just like start clapping <laughs> as I walked into the classroom. And, <laughs> you know, it was just uh like they would just do just random things sometimes. And I mean, if you can imagine, too, like so the class sizes, they were really big, you know, uh, in comparison to here. So on average. You know, uh, well, before the pandemic, you know, a average classroom size would be about, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 students. But there I had sometimes 35 and 40. And so you can just imagine sometimes uh, this with, you know, the little kids. And uh, so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, some moments where I was like, wow, this is a lot right now. But it was definitely, you know, um one of those things that just brought me a lot of joy and, you know, confirmed for me just that I wanted to continue teaching upon returning to the States. 
Thank you for your answer. Because I think people sometimes feel like Peace Corps doesn't really... I mean, a lot of people do Peace Corps because they want to add it to the resume, but they really don't realize how much they can shift your life forever, like it did to me. Um, and clearly for Jason as well. So thank you so much for that. And then going off that too. Yeah. So the, uh, I, I really, uh, I befriended the, the uh, art teacher that was, you know, teaching at the school. And then a lot of times we would, um, you know, so his house is like so close to the school. So after sometimes like he would have a class, or I would have a class, like I would go and eat lunch with his family. And then, uh, I would just like see him paint and we would sometimes work on projects together. And, um, you know, I just learned a lot from him and, when I came back, I was like, okay, like I'm teaching this like hybrid course here, like art, English, and you know, all these other things. And so, um, <laughs> you know, when I came back, I was like, I want to teach art. And so, but I, you know, didn't major in art education. You know, it was, I got my major in business. And so, yeah, coming back, I remember I, um, you know, um, some kind of way got in contact with, a principal uh, at the school in Atlanta that I was living at the time, you know, once I moved back. And then I remember her asking, she was like, uh, well, can you draw? <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, all right. She was like, you know, come in, you know, we'll talk. And then, so this was fall of 2018. So I spent the semester at this one uh, high school uh, teaching, uh, art. And I was actually a substitute at the time, but the kids didn't know that they just knew that me as my, the art teacher. And then the following semester, spring of 2019, I became a paraprofessional at another school. And then, uh, fall of last year, 2019, I became a teacher. So I just went from like, you know, a sub to a pair to a teacher in, you know, a matter of one year. And so it was just really just, you know, um, knowing what I wanted to do and just being patient and, you know, trusting that process. And, you know, now I'm, you know, doing what I enjoy doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. I didn't know how fast, like, I remember you telling me that you were teaching in Atlanta, but I didn't know like the steps that you have get taken to the place you are right now in Texas. So it's really nice to see that evolution. An advice for all those people out there that are listening to the Peace Corps tales that are thinking about Peace Corps. What advice do you give to those people? Yeah, so it's really just, uh, you know, four words. And then this uh, just kind of stuck with me from a commencement speech that I heard from the late Steve Jobs. And so at the end of the speech in which he's addressing Stanford University, he says, um, you know, he, he looked at this uh, catalog when he was in college, I believe it was. And on the back of the cover, it said, stay hungry, stay foolish. And um, so those are the words that he left students with at the end of the speech. And so um, those words just kind of always stuck with me. And so that's the advice um, that I, too, would give others who are interested in the Peace Corps. Because if you think about it, it's right. Stay hungry, you know, meaning, you know, always you know, have that drive and determination to go out and, you know, try to achieve whatever it is that you're going for and to always just, you know, be resilient and, you know, pursuing that and then staying foolish in the sense of never being afraid to explore, you know, step outside the box, step outside your comfort zone 
and, um, you know, do things that, you know, may be off the, you know, beaten path. And so, um, you know, that, that's really what, you know, I could, you know, the advice that I could offer for people, um, because it's, you know, the world is such a big place and it's so much more to the environment or, you know, wherever you've grown up. And so you can, you know, see another part of the world and, you know, see, you know, the, uh, impact that you can make on people and, you know, the impact that they can have on you. And I just think that that's, you know, just a really nice thing and, you know, just something that, you know, a lot of people can benefit from. You never know what doors and opportunities can, uh, come from, you know, just staying hungry and staying foolish. Yeah, it's so true. So thank you for that advice. I, I hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. And your tale has been so fun. Like I love listening to all the different tales. And now I'm super excited to hear the poem. So can you please tell us the poem that you created for us? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it's called, uh, this feeling is unmatched. This feeling is unmatched. This feeling is brought to you by smiles and laughter, running laps and laps. The time lapse with photos from way back to Aunt Tomorrow, Madagascar to be exact. People reflecting my image, skin that's black. Arriving to the village, self-conscious my language had lacked. Foreign words at times had my tongue trapped. Then one day I broke free and began to speak. Joking with neighbors, the sand beneath our feet. We chop it up in the forest, double entendre. Staring at stars at night, I'd often wonder. I'd fall asleep and wake up to the morning sun, passing by barefoot babies with no shirt on morning runs. Then there was rice for the nourishment of my body. Folks yelling out from their porch, Caribovari. Then I met a little girl that resembled my features, hair and braids, glowing her smile, barefoot, no sneakers, playing outside. Climbing fruit trees in season, it was a game. The simple pleasures of life, hard to explain. Years went by and I slowly grew to a man. 2015 at 23, my journey began. Knowledge gained, superseding what I could teach. Touching lives that seemed far beyond reach. For three years, I called the beautiful island my home. A time of great memories, friendships, and lessons learned. I look forward to the day when again I can roam, be free, unmasked, and finally make my return. Oh my god! I got goosebumps! Yay! <laughs> yes. That was beautiful. I felt like we were back at our talent show. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys. This is, this is nice to have you. Although I miss your hat. <laughs> When you were at the talent show, you'd always have your, um, what are those called? Those hats? My beret, yeah. <laughs> yes, the beret. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason, for uh, sharing your tale. It's been so fun to just hear everything because we were in the same stage, and yet we didn't really get to see you because you were up north. You were so far away and we were more in the middle. And so thank you so much for sharing everything, for coming here and just being willing to share your tales with our listeners. Yes, for sure. It was uh, definitely a pleasure. And, you know, I thank both of you for the opportunity and just kind of reflecting back on, you know, our service and time together. It was, you know, just really nice thinking back to, you know, all the good times, which was just, you know, a couple of years ago. So, um, 
yeah, um, thank you again. Thank you again. And, um, you know, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice to, I don't know, get, get in touch with a person from our stash that we didn't really get to see that often. It's exciting to hear the same service from a different point of view on a different region because Madagascar is, is so widely diverse too. And, um, I don't know. It was just really nice to hear your story, your tell. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. For our listeners, um, I want to say if you do want to connect with us on social media, you can go to PC Tales Podcast on Facebook or on Instagram and you can follow us there. Also, our website again is peacecorptalespodcast.weebly.com and there is an interest form for any of you guys who want to do it uh, and be an interviewee yourself because we are definitely looking for all kinds of tales, all kinds of different experiences. So nothing want, we want to get just all kinds of different perspectives. So please contact us. And we hope that you enjoyed this tale of Jason. It was a, a lot of fun for us, and I hope it was fun for you. So thank you so much, and velume. Velume. Velume, ave. I mean, manara kekua.